This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. Welcome back to the Relic Radio Show. I've got another 60 minutes of radio drama for you this week, as we do every Tuesday at RelicRadio.com. Our first story this week comes from Adventure Incorporated. You'll hear their July 12th, 1948 episode titled The Curse of the Emerald Buddha. After that, it's the Listener's Playhouse and the City of Silence. That episode aired July 20th, 1940. Revere, the makers of America's finest motion picture cameras and projectors presents Adventure Incorporated with Frank Graham, Happy Boyington, and Pat McGeehan. <laughs> adventure, mystery, and folklore. Strange tales that have been gathered in the far corners of the world. These are the stories you will hear when you listen to the members of that unique organization, Adventure Incorporated. Three of them, Jason Grimm, Frank Fletcher, and Greg Devlin, are seated now in the lounge of an ocean liner, bound for one of their assignments in Danger. And now for Revere, Happy Boyington. Say, do you want to know how to really enjoy that vacation you're about to take? Okay. Just be sure you take with you a Revere 8mm or 16mm movie camera. Now suppose you're out on a ranch, dude or otherwise. You want to get some good action shots of the cowboys breaking a bronc or opening a cab. You're standing by with your magazine load camera all set. A kick and a click, and both cowboy and camera in action. You want to get the complete scene, though, but you're running out of film. All is not lost. Not with a Revere magazine load. Listen. Just as easy as that. That's how quickly you can change magazines, get your camera back into action. In a few fleeting seconds, you've captured forever a beautiful picture to review, along with your other pleasant memories. Now, aren't you glad you took the Revere camera? Remember, you're bound to cheer if you use Revere. And now, back to... Adventure Incorporated. Did you gentlemen notice that emerald ring that girl was wearing? Who was noticing the ring? I was noticing the girl. <laughs> I did, Jason. It looks like a Malayan emerald. I bought one in Singapore when I was there on that porcelain goddess case. Uh, speaking of emeralds and oriental goddesses, did you ever hear of the curse of the emerald Buddha? Uh, don't tell me Adventure Incorporated sent you over there to investigate a curse. No, I got this story several years ago while I was visiting the commander of a French foreign legion post in the Cambodian jungle. The doctor of the post told it to me. Three men sat before a campfire in the heart of the Cambodian jungle. Two of them were white, dressed in soil traffic suits and sun helmets. The third was a dark-skinned Cambodian. His name was Gengai. He was clothed only in a loincloth. In the morning, this Gengai, native fisherman from a nearby lake, would lead the two hunters on a trail of a giant man-killing tiger that was terrorizing the countryside. For five days now, they had followed the spoor, and their hopes were high. 
sitting with his back against a palm tree, staring impassively into the fire. This native told his companion stories of other days, of his home on the shores of the great jungle-bordered lake, of the magnificent deserted city that lay virtually on the edge of their camp. A strange legend had been handed down the ages about this mysterious city, and this native Gengai told it to his employers. And in the great capital of the Khmer people, which was the finest city in all Asia, there is a statue of the Lord Buddha sitting upon a coil cobra, which is the emblem of that race. And this statue is fashioned out of emeralds so cunningly matched and cemented together that the whole work seems as one solid stone. It shines with a green light so bright that none but the faithful may look upon it. Whoever finds this idol is doomed to certain and horrible death. Jim Sanders and his companion Lester Grove listened with rapt attention as the descendant of the ancient Khmer told the story of the great treasure that lay beneath the bayon of Angkor Wat. Somewhere under this great central tower of the temple lay the treasure of a vanished race. The golden emblems of Shiva, the golden throne, and the emerald Buddha. Sanders grabbed his heavy rifle and peered into the jungle night expectantly. Gengai turned to him. Tiger! Sanders anticipated the sight of two burning points of light that would be the eyes of the great striped beast. He wondered if he would be ready for the spring of this lord of the jungle. And then, after what seemed an eternity, the three men relaxed their vigil. The crash in the underbrush was farther away. The tiger had passed them by, had gone to do his hunting elsewhere. Sanders recalled the story Gengai had told them. That story Gengai has been telling us about that treasure and the curse of the Emerald Buddha has got me quite curious. Let's poke around in those ruins for a while before we take up that tiger's trail. Who knows? Maybe we'll find that hidden treasure room. Oh, matey, I'm with you. But this here runs in tigers for a lot of blinking natives. It's not to me like him. If we find that treasure, it's back to Blighty for me. The next morning, the white men visited the ruins of Angkor Wat. Gengai, who guided them to the massive pile of masonry, refused to enter the dead city. He still feared the spirits of the snake people that guarded the place. But even greater was his fear of the terrible curse of the Emerald Buddha. Hour after hour, the adventurers explored the ruins, led on by the fascinating call of hidden treasure. They pulled aside the vines and peered into dark recesses between the stone walls. They climbed the long flights of stone steps and methodically searched each crypt and cloister. Army, but this is a big place. I hope we don't get lost in these alleyways. The little cockney groped his way forward in the semi-darkness of the passage. As they progressed farther in the maze of passageways beneath the central pyramid of the temple, it became so dark that Sanders had to light the lantern he had brought along. And finally, in one of the subterranean rooms, the men found something that made their hearts beat fast in excited expectation. Say, bro, look at this. We found something. This stone doesn't match the others. It's a slab instead of squared like the rest of them. Aye, aye. You suppose it hides an opening? We'll find out in quick short order. Get this century-old collection of dust and rubble out of the way so we can get to it. Aye. After digging with their hands till their fingers were numb, they found a deep crack between the slab and the adjoining stones. They put their shoulders to the panel and pushed. The stone moved. 
There was a sound of rusty metal as the door pressed back against the concealed leaf spring. The treasure seekers stared at each other in astonishment. This must be the door to the treasure room that Gengai had described in his story. The door that had not been opened for centuries. Again, the men put their weight against the stone panel. The crack widened just enough for them to creep into the vault beyond. In the far end of the room, the lantern light caught and held a metallic gleam. The men were awestruck as they took in the sight. Before them were piled the treasures of Angkor. Gold and silver ornaments and vessels. Precious jewels and gem-encrusted robes. Wealth beyond measure. And on the table overlooking these treasures like a silent guardian sat the Emerald Buddha. Lord, we found it. We found it. The men sobered quickly. The hollow echo of the room seemed to make their voices a desecration of the silence of centuries. Reverently, they approached the forbidden treasure. As they moved, the whole room seemed to fill with the scenters of bitter almonds. The men drew back. This strange odor could mean but one thing. Somewhere in the darkness lurked the terror of the jungle, a king cobra. Then, as if some invisible hand had touched it, a golden goblet fell from its place atop the treasure pile and rolled almost to the feet of the startled men. They looked up quickly. Before them reared a giant milk-white cobra poised to strike. The beady ears glared malevolently at the humans who had disturbed his lair. Oh, Bobby, let's get out of here. The lantern crashed against the wall and fell to the floor in a flaming mass. As Sanders slid through the small opening, the other hunter, white with fear, began to push through behind him. Ah! Sanders looked back. The flickering light from the broken lantern fell on a sight that made his nerves crisp. The slab that had formed the door of the hidden room had sprung back into place, crushing his companion against the wall. Sanders saw in that one fleeting glance that there was nothing he could do to help. His friend was dead. The curse of the Emerald Buddha had taken the victim. Then he saw something that sent stark terror ripping down his spine. The giant cobra was crawling over the dead man's body into the corridor. Completely unnerved now, he turned and ran along the corridor in wild, headlong flight. Behind him raced the huge snake. After what seemed hours, Sanders stumbled from the ancient corridor into daylight. But even as he emerged from the temple, an unseen hand seemed to reach out and snatch at his ankle. <clears throat> A thick loop of sprawling vine caught his foot and threw him full upon his face. Before he could stagger to his feet, the whole temple seemed to crumble about him. The vine upon which he had drifted dislodged loose stones and rubble that came crashing down upon him in an avalanche of doom was his also the fate that had been foretold in the legend of the Emerald Buddha. When Gengai at last dared to approach the ruined temple of Angkor Vat to call for his masters, he found Sanders unconscious half buried in a heap of debris near the ancient walls of the Bayon. Beside the injured man stretched the smashed body of a large albino cobra. Gengai could find no trace of the other white hunter who had entered the ruin. A week later, a white man and a brown man approached a jungle outpost of the French Foreign Legion. The exhausted native was carrying the half-dead white man. The company surgeon who was called in a vain hope of saving the crushed hunter, 
pieced together a very strange tale. The white man dropped into a coma from which he never emerged. Still muttering about a forbidden temple, a beautiful emerald Buddha, a white cobra, and a terrible oriental curse. At this point, we pause for a 30-second commercial, after which we return to... Adventure Incorporated. You know, Jason, tales about these oriental curses fascinate me. I even had a ringside seat while one of them went to work. Uh, where was that, Greg? Right in the middle of the Kalahari Desert. Africa, huh? Yeah, southwestern part, not far from Johannesburg. It's a hot spot, all right. Tell us about it, Greg. This Captain Von Schuler sat in his chair in the shade of a tree and surveyed the ragged African before him. The Germans had driven most of the natives out of the rich territory that had once been their home for centuries. Now the few that still lived here were about to face the ordeal of crossing and burning trackless expanse of the Kalahari Desert to seek a new home. The native bowed slightly before the German officer. I have a message for you from my chief. The officer stirred slightly in his chair and regarded the old man with contempt. What message, Spinehorn? Speak quickly and get out. It is time for my nap. My chief bids me tell you that since this land is no longer ours, a tribe must leave. The only water this side of desert is here in your camp. We wish to fill our water vessels for many days must pass before we reach water. Now, does your pig of a chief think I am in this accursed country to provide him and his people with water? Get out! Get your water in the Kalahari! The native listened with an impassive face to the captain's words. Then he looked straight into the face of the German. The old man raised his hand and pointed toward the border of the Kalahari. You have denied my people water. So now, all but the strongest must die of thirst. You, who are sending us to our death, will die in the desert. Not for lack of water, but by it. The officer rose, and in a sudden impassioned rage, struck the native across the face with his riding crop. The old man did not flinch from the insulting blow, but pointed his hand at his attacker. You shall die. By water in the desert, you shall die. I pronounce against you the curse of the Kalahari. About a week later, Captain Von Schuler received orders to take a scouting party into the desert. The Germans, led by native guides, set out upon the long, hard march. On the third day, the last known waterhole had been passed, and the trip across the wilderness was beginning to tell upon both men and horses. But on they went, till at last the party entered a small canyon. Now nestled in the bottom of the rocky defile were two clear pools of water. There, Von Schuler called a halt. You men dismount here. You will drink and water your horses at the larger pool. I am going to have a nice bath in this one. Then Von Schuler removed his uniform and waded into the water. The weary soldiers drank their fill, watered their horses, then sat back to enjoy the shade of the surrounding boulders. Suddenly, a strangled cry brought them to their feet. The men ran toward the smaller pool. Von Schuler stood in the center, his arms thrashing madly. 
Before the men realized what had happened, the officer had sank to his chin, and another wild scream burst from his lips. Suddenly, the plight of their leader became clear. Quicksand. One of the orderlies reached the edge of the pool on the run and snapped the end of a long bullwhip toward the struggling man. It fell short. In a despairing effort to reach it, Von Schuler overbalanced and plunged forward beneath the water. There was a short struggle, and Von Schuler disappeared, dying as the old witch doctor had prophesied, by water in the desert, by the dread curse of the Kalahari. At this point, we have another 30-second commercial, after which back to... Adventure Incorporated. You know, Greg, I'll bet the dregs out of my next cup of tea that we're going to have a story from Frank here about China. Well, Jason, that's a bet I'd like to see you win. I want to hear it. (laughs) Thanks, fellas. I I had no idea you were so anxious to get me started. (laughs) But we are. (laughs) But no kidding. Adventure Incorporated sent me to China to a spot where you can get your hip pocket just crammed full of valuable valuables if you'll just uh, changey-changey for one certain item. I'll bet a down payment on my right arm I know what you mean. What's that, Greg? You're referring to guns. Right. You named it. (laughs) Captain Lance Corbin watched impatiently as the last slingloads of cargo were hoisted aboard the rusty little cargo steamer, Taiping. It was hot and smelly at the Hankow dock, and he was also on the verge of being behind schedule. The outgoing tide of the muddy Yangtze River tugged at the mooring lines, seemingly as anxious to get the steamer into the stream as was her skipper. At last, all was finished, and the army of coolie stevedores scrambled ashore. The mate had gone forward to let go the lines when a volley of gunfire came from one of the narrow streets, and a small, heavy-set Chinese rushed up the gangway, followed by four other Orientals in army uniforms. He made his way to the bridge and confronted Captain Corbin. I am Wang Lo Chi, merchant of Chongqing. You are carrying a cargo of mine upriver. My comprador failed to inform you that I was to take passage on your ship with uh, these men who are my bodyguard. Eh. What about those shots ashore? Are you sure they aren't the reason you decided to make this trip? You seem to be in a mighty big hurry to get aboard. Oh, think nothing of them, my friend. There are enemies of mine here in Hankow. Agents of other merchants who are my rivals in the silk trade. They will use any means to get the best of a competitor. But none of their men will attack you. And I am safe from them now. Okay, Wang, I'm too busy now to check your story, so I'll have to take your word for it. I'll have the steward fix up a cabin for you. But your men will have to sleep on deck. All the rest of the rooms are taken. And now if you'll excuse me, I'll get this tub underway. We have a scheduled time to hit the rapids, and I can't afford any delays. Corbin watched the Chinese climb clumsily down the ladder to the main deck and then turned to shout orders for getting underway. The Taiping churned the muddy waters of the upper Yangtze. Ichang was left behind at last, and Captain Corbin was glad to see the massive mud-built houses slip quietly astern, even though it meant the trials and dangers of the walled-in rapids where the least mistake in handling meant disaster. One after the other... Tatung, the Kungling, the Papo, and the May Sun Rapids were negotiated with the aid of a skillful pilot and the thousands of river coolies. At last, Captain Corbin steamed out into a long, sluggish stretch of pea-green water. The ship came abreast of a small fishing village, and Corbin carefully scanned the river ahead, on the lookout for any small craft that might get in the way of the steamer. 
The Taiping was rounding a curve near the village when the captain turned suddenly to see Wang Lutzi standing beside him on the wing of the bridge. There was an oily politeness in the voice of the Chinese merchant as he spoke. You must pull in near the shore at the next bend. I have cargo which must be discharged there. Sorry, Wang, no can do. My manifest named Chungking is my next port of discharge. I'm afraid there has been a slight error, my captain, which surely you will rectify. It would be too bad to disappoint my men who will be waiting for the guns I am to deliver to them at the ferry crossing. Guns? Certainly. It is impossible to carry on a war, even a small one, without guns. They are in the cases marked machinery that you loaded in Hankow. Ah. Well, that's why you were in such a hurry to get aboard, eh? Yes. But the followers of Leo Song, who tried to kill me in Hankow, should know better than to attack the tiger of the Yangtze. So should you know better than to oppose my wishes. The Chinese drew a small automatic from the folds of his sleeve and held it in line with Corbin's middle. You will take orders from me, Captain. While you were busy at the last rapid, my men took over your ship. Your officers and crew are under guard. Even now they are preparing to drop anchor. Under the threat of the muzzle of the gun, there was nothing to do but to obey the wish of the gun runner. The ship had hardly fetched up on her anchor chain before Captain Corvin and his officers were marched into the wheelhouse and the heavy door bolted upon them from the outside. Wang Mo Tsi gloated over his bit of strategy. It is said that he who rides the tiger has a rough ride. In an hour, my men will be aboard, unloading guns for the overthrow of the warlord of this province. Even now, one of my bodyguards is signaling to them. <laughs> Corvin watched through a porthole as a large junk moved silently out from shore and drew alongside. A gang of coolies leaped aboard the Taiping and rushed to secure the lines. Under Wang's direction, the forward hatches were uncovered, and the work of transferring the cases of guns began. Corvin groaned in dismay as his chief mate joined him at the porthole. Uh, looks like we're trapped for good now. I should never have trusted that Wang Lo Chi. He'll take our entire cargo, and there's no telling what he'll do to us could drop us overboard, but I don't think it's likely. He knows we got a gunboat control in these upper reaches, and it may show up at any time. Ah, that's probably why he's in such a hurry to get the guns unloaded. Those coolies on the junk surely can't be the gang he was signaling. Captain, look. Something's gone wrong. The coolies are running to the junk. There was a slight bump and roll as another vessel moved alongside the Taiping. Corvin and his men were unable to see the approaching vessel as it was on the offshore side of their ship. The door of the cabin was suddenly opened, and three men stepped into the room. One low sea was flanked by two American Navy officers. Hello, Captain. I'm Lieutenant Dexter of the Manila. Lucky thing we happened to be passing and decided to see what was wrong. When we came aboard, Wang Lo Tsi told us the whole story. Your passenger was a pretty smart man. After the river pirates came aboard and captured you and your crew, they made him tell them where the cargo of guns was hidden. Well, uh... How'd you know we were in trouble? The Wang Lo Tsi managed to get aft and raise your ensign upside down. We recognized the international distress signal and came alongside. The men stepped out onto the deck, and the mate hurried to release the crew members who were locked in their quarters, then scanned the shore. The junk was making good time getting away, the huge mainsail billowing out. Suddenly, Captain Corbin grasped the arm of the skipper of the gunboat. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wang Lo Tsi was no hero, as he wanted you to believe. He just wanted to save his own neck when he saw he couldn't get away. He raised the distress signal, all right. But it wasn't to signal you. He was signaling his men ashore. Look! Coming over the brow of a small hill just back to the shore was a huge polyglot crowd, 
dressed in well-worn army uniforms. The men watched as the army of Wang Lo Tsi, the tiger of the Yangtze, halted, looked with evident surprise at the scene before them, and then fled in confusion. Lieutenant Dexter smiled as he turned to Captain Corbin. You know, I should have known that no true seaman raised that flag in the distress signal. He didn't know that by custom and regulation, the inverted flag should have been raised to half-mast. Ensign Walters, arrest Wang Lutzi, our overstuffed warlord, and escort him aboard the Manila. Have you any idea of the low-cost enjoyment available to you by showing sound movies right in your own home? With the new 16-millimeter Revere sound projector, you can entertain and educate your family and friends with professional full-length features, comedy, travel, instruction. All can be purchased or rented from your Revere dealer. Or perhaps you prefer a cartoon or short subject to serve as prologue to showing your own movies. Those can also be had. And with the flick of a switch, you turn from sound to 16-millimeter silence. This grand amusement for everyone is the perfect solution to your home entertainment problem. Even a youngster can put on a sound performance with this projector. The single lightweight unit is as easy to carry as a suitcase, and it sets up as fast as a card table. Your dealer has this new remarkable theater tone Revere sound projector now. The theater tone speaker doubles as carrying case for projector and accessories, forming a single unit weighing only 33 pounds. And now back to Adventure Incorporated. You know, gentlemen, I ran across that old gunboat to Manila the last time I was in Shanghai. She'd been taken off the Yangtze Patrol and was about to be sent back to Mare Island. Well, Greg, she deserved retiring. She had some pretty tough shows out there. I ran across some pretty tough hombres myself. The time Adventure Incorporated sent me to Algeria to find that missing newspaper correspondent. Those boys were of a slightly different nationality, but their ideas and ambitions were about the same. Well, just when I get all primed to hear Jason's grim story, laid in the wild desert country of North Africa, he had to go and leave us. But you can bet I'll be at the adjoining table the next time those boys from Adventure Incorporated get together, even if I have to bribe the chief steward. Join us again next week at the same time as we listen to other tales told by Jason Grimm, who is really Pat McGeehan, Greg Devlin, who is Pappy Boyington, and Frank Fletcher, who is Frank Graham. Adventure Incorporated is written and produced by Charles Crowder, music by Del Castillo, and special effects by Jim Murphy. This is a Hollywood Enterprises production, produced in Hollywood, California. The Listener's Playhouse, a program of original plays specifically written for the radio audience by a group of three young writers, Latouche, McDougall, and Williams. Tonight by Albert N. Williams, The City of Silence, 
with special musical effects by Tom Bennett. The sound of your own voice. Have you ever heard it? Heard how your own voice sounds to yourself when you're talking? How words fail you, and the words you can't say out loud go rattling away in your brain like this. Shouting and shrieking to be heard, only drifting away in your own mind. That works when words fail you. And then there's those times when people don't believe you. When all you say, all you've planned to say, beats against the wall of unbelief. No matter what you say, the words just drift away like chaff in a high wind. Just drift away because nobody believes you and words don't mean anything. Just small, empty sounds. And then there's times when you can't make yourself understood. When you can't find words to mean what you think. When the words you say only laugh at you and pound against each other and make you feel foolish and your voice sounds like this to yourself. Yes, no matter how your voice sounds to others, it sounds like that to you. No matter how many people are in the world with you, as long as the words we say and the speech we use betrays us the way it does, we all still live in cities of silence. Tonight, an experiment in the sound of a man's voice to himself as he talks. An adventure into the mysteries of man's communication with man. Islam in the City of Silence, a presentation of the Listener's Playhouse. I dreamed of coming to New York, of riding across the Hudson on a boat, of feeling my way through the mist to the city of tall, high buildings, New York, of huddling among all these people, no longer alone, never again alone, of getting off the ferry boat with all these people and going with them. No longer alone. Now I'm in a city. Ah, what's the matter, buddy? You lost? Why? I don't know. I, I was, I was just looking, just looking at the city. Ah, uh, stranger, huh? Well, you're in a great place, greatest place in the world, New York. Any place special you want to go? Why? Why, no, thank you, officer. I'll, I'll just walk along, walk around for a while. Well, take care. Remember, all east and west streets are one-way streets. And the avenues have pretty heavy traffic, so be careful. I will. Thank you. Gee, it's like that. They're friendly. They're friendly people. They talk to you, and you can talk to them. And there's wonderful sounds all the time. No empty hours at night, but always sounds. No silence. Oh, how I hate silence. How I love sound. The noise of people and the sound of people and talking to people. Uh, uh, hey, mister. Huh? Uh, wh what park is this, mister? Park? Oh, I guess it's Bowling Green. Yeah, it's Bowling Green. Thanks. Thanks, mister. Where I come from, they don't talk to strangers. But here, nobody's a stranger. Everybody talks to everybody else, and you can't be lonely in a city. You just can't be lonely. <laughs> Washington, Washington Square. 
Trees. And a park right in the center of the city. Big old trees like back home. But across the street from the park were the trees, all the lights, all the sound. No empty small town at night, no darkness, no silence. But people walking, people laughing. <laughs> people singing, people together. <laughs> Hello. It's a nice night, isn't it? Friend of yours, Harry? What'd you say, bud? Why, a nice night, isn't it? Hey, what are you trying to do, pick my girl up? Oh, why, no, I just said it was a nice night. I Harry, leave him alone. Trying to make a pickup, huh? Bothering my girl, huh? Why, why, I'd like to talk with somebody, that's all. What are you trying to say, huh? Come on, bud, out with it. I, I wasn't saying anything, just a night. Oh, night. Harry, he's drunk, that's all. Leave him alone, Harry. He wasn't trying to do anything. He's just flat happy. All right, come on. I'd like to kill it. Ah, oh, forget it, Harry. I, I only said hello. Stranger, if you passing meet me and desire to speak to me, if you passing meet me, who said that? You desire to speak to me. Some poet. Stranger, if you meet me. <laughs> he had a girl with him. I shouldn't have spoken to him. Loneliness is a poison. If men can't talk to other men, they get sick. They lose hope. Words aren't words unless they're spoken to other people. The city's a big place, and there are many people in the city, and they should speak to each other. Speak to each other, but they don't. Oh, yes, they talk to each other. They say, Good morning, Mr. Eslin. I've lived in the next room to him now for two months, and all he's ever said is, Fine day, Mr. Eslin. I've wanted to talk to him so many times. So many times when I was in my room at night, and he was in his room. I could hear him pacing up and down and hear him humming some song in his room next to mine. But his door is always shut. Always shut. Even when I see him in the front hall at night when it's early and people have nothing to do but talk, I smile at him. I want to talk to him. Talk to him because I'm lonely. And, and when I say, good evening, Mr. Muller. Good evening, Mr. Lester. Uh, shall we? Well, would you like to? He closes his door and goes into his room. Alone. Alone. We can talk of dreams and plans. We can talk of how we live and what we want to death and God and love and work and... Did you start to say something, Mr. Ritzman? I closed the door. I didn't realize. Well, I... I, I guess not. I I only started to ask if, if you'd had a good day. I... Yes. Thank you. I did. Good night, Mr. Ritzman. And in my own room, I thought of him, alone. And of all the people in the city, people that I wanted to talk to, people that I wanted to be with, men and women, I could tell them things, and they could tell me things, what they thought, what they saw, if they were happy, if they were unhappy. And I could help them, and they could help me. And at night, alone in my room, from my window, I could see five stars. Five stars, between the fire escape and the sign on the next building. The same five stars every night. But you can't talk to stars. And then, one night, late in the fall, I met her. Somebody who would talk to me. It was raining. She was walking in the park. Walking like me. No hurry, just walking. 
because she was lonely. When people are lonely, they, they walk slowly, stretching each moment out to a long time because they're afraid of the next moment. Being lonely is being afraid. Uh, aren't you aren't you getting wet? Wet? Well, aren't you getting wet? You don't seem to mind it. Mind it? Well, I don't mind it. I rather like it. I like walking in the rain. You do? Yes. Uh, yes. I like to walk in the rain because I'm lonely and I can't go home. I can't go home alone. I'll die if I go home alone. What did you say? I, uh, I said, uh, yes, yes, I do like to walk in the rain, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. I like to walk in the rain myself. I like to walk in the rain because when I walk in the rain, I don't get lonely. Sometimes, sometimes when I get lonely, I think, I think... When you get lonely, you what? I think, I think, I think I'll die. I get so afraid. <laughs> oh, you must be awful lonely. I get lonely myself, but it doesn't get me down like that. I go to the movies, I get out books and read them, I walk. Oh, well, there are lots of things to do. But things to do, I don't want that. I want to talk to people. I want to be with people and listen to them. I want to tell them things. Tell them things? I want to talk to them about the things I do and listen to them tell about the things they do, where they work, what they think, things, well, things like that. You don't know what you want, do you? What do you mean? You start telling me things. You start to say something and then and you stop. As if your words get too heavy. Words get too heavy. <laughs> That's just what it feels like. That's what it sounds like to me. All heavy and muffled. I try so hard to talk with people, but, but when they look at me, it's just like that. When I want to tell them what I really feel, it sounds to me like my words get all heavy. and don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> You're unhappy. I've got to talk with people. I've got to get through to them. That's what words are for. I don't worry about words. Just being with people is enough for me when I'm lonely. I want to be with you. I want to be with you all the long night. You're beautiful. If I were with you, I wouldn't ever be lonely. Never again. Why? Why do you look at me like that? What are you thinking? <laughs> I, I was only thinking that I'd, well, I'd like to know you. I'd like you to be my friend so that I could talk to you. <laughs> oh, you can talk with me anytime you want to. <laughs> I haven't talked to anyone since I came to this city. To anyone except Mr. Muller. Well, let's not stand here in the rain like children in bathing suits. No, no, let's not. You can walk home with me. What's your name? Islin. Islin, huh? My name is Anne. Come along, it's beginning to rain harder. When I first came to the city, I was happy, and I was strong, and I had great hope. And then I got lonely. Nobody would speak to me. I had nobody to talk to, but now I'm happy again. The world isn't empty anymore, and the city is friendly to me. And, and... What are you doing, Uslan? Uh, doing? I'm just standing here by the window watching the moon rise. Uslan, you'd better go. It's getting late. Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. What were you thinking about when you were standing by the window? I was just thinking how happy I was. That's all. <laughs> Are you happy, Islam? I love you, Anne. I love you. I do, Anne. I love you. I love you. I'm happy now, and I was never happy before, <laughs> but I'm not lonely anymore. I'll never be lonely anymore. <laughs> Islam, what are you trying to tell me? That, that I... Not that you love me. But that you're not lonely anymore. No, I'm not lonely anymore. I'm happy, Anne. I'm happy. I'm glad, Islam. 
I'm very glad. I, I want to see you again. I must. Oh, you can see me anytime you want, Islan. And Don't I... say it, Islan. Don't say anything. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Muller. Good morning, Mr. Eslin. Muller, some evening let you and I sit down and have a long talk. A long talk? Yes. We've lived in the next room from each other for five months, and we don't know each other at all. Oh, Mr. Eslin, I believe in privacy, Mr. Eslin. I think people should preserve privacy. It's... it's... Uh, good morning, Mr. Eslin. Preserve privacy. Preserve madness. No, Muller. We'll get together and talk and talk. We can be friends, Muller. We can be friends and people should be friends. Should talk to each other. Oh. Oh, Mr. Islin. Hello, Mrs. Smith. I was worried, Mr. Islin. You didn't sleep in your bed all night. No, I, I was out all night. I was I was with a friend, Mrs. Smith. Oh. And we were up talking all night. I love to talk to people. I like a lot of friends, Mrs. Smith. You know, I think all the people here in the house should get together sometimes and just talk. That keeps people from being lonely. Oh, Mr. Islin, one of... The rules of this house is that nobody intrudes on anybody else's privacy. We try to preserve privacy here. Most of us have very little else left to life except that. And I don't believe in destroying that. Well, I'm glad you're all right, Mr. Hislin. I was worried when you didn't come in last night. Good morning, Mr. Hislin. <laughs> Intrude on their privacy, privacy, privacy. A whole city of people, and people keep to themselves. Oh, the fools. The poor, lonely fools. Don't talk to anybody. How can people live without words? How can people live without talking? How can men stay alive when they're lonely? Now you'll not be lonely. I won't be lonely. Because I found someone to talk to, someone to be with. Go on, Mr. Down there in the park. Did you ever think how people, uh, how people... How people what? How people are like... How people are like leaves. All dressed the same, all walk the same, like leaves blown. How people what, honey? What did you start to say? I don't know, Anne. I just started to say how, how people are like leaves, I guess. Oh, my Islam. What made you think of that? I don't know. If we could know the leaves, we could know ourselves. No life and death, happiness and joy. I was just trying to figure people out, I guess. But, honey, why do you try to figure people out? Why don't you just be a person and try to be happy? It's like trying to plan to breathe. You'll go nuts worrying about it. But I want to talk about things like that, Anne. Because if we talk about it, maybe we can understand things a little oh. bit. <laughs> Talking won't get you anything, Islam. The words are all we have. 
We don't know anything except words. Words about things, words about ideas, words... Well, without words, we wouldn't be alive. If we don't talk, we're dead, Anne. That's what loneliness is. It's death, Anne. Oh, words don't mean anything, Islam. Words are just words. Are you happy when you love me? I am. I am. I do love you, Anne. I do. Don't talk about it, Islam. Just be happy. But, Anne... Shh, Islam. <laughs> just be quiet and enjoy the bus ride. People together are together unless it means something to them. Only words mean anything. You can't be happy unless you say you're happy. You can't love a person unless you tell them that you love them. Words are thoughts and thoughts are ideas and ideas are life. <laughs> you're only happy when you're talking about living. You're only happy when you talk about happiness. You're dead if you don't talk. You're dead if you don't talk. <laughs> There's other things than words. There's poetry and music and painting. Oh, but I'm a small person. I don't have things like that. I don't have music. I have to use just plain words. Beethoven didn't have to use words, poor, weak words. He found his ideas in music, and the whole world listened. But I don't have music, only words, and I must say my words or I'll die. Life without words is death, death. <laughs> and men have had poetry. I, too, Pomona, I, too, have bubbled up, floated the measureless boat and been washed on your shores. I, too, am but a trail of drift and debris. I, too, leave little wrecks upon you, you fish-shaped islands. I throw myself upon your breast, my father. Walt Whitman had I poetry, and when he talked, the whole world knew and listened. And he didn't beg because his words were strong and big. His words weren't weak, empty words like mine. His words were ideas, and his idea was life, and he lived. I don't have that. I only have blind, hungry words. No man, no woman to listen to them. Music, poetry, and men have painting. Silent they sit, no words ever need pass their lips, because all their life, all their ideas are in the wonderful colors, the wonderful paintings they make. In the work of this great master, you can see in every brushstroke the touch of a genius of communication. Here in the very colors, the artist communed with the people who would see his great picture years after his death. In the last, the composition, in the approach to the subject, Color, line, form, all mean things. All are ideas, and ideas are life. But I have nothing. No color, no music, only words, only empty words, words that mean nothing, words I can't say, words that people can't hear, can't believe. What are you trying to say, Islam? I'm only thinking how people are like, like the seasons. Your summer, Anne, warm summer. Mr. Muller is like winter. Cold, cold. <laughs> words are heavy, <laughs> heavy. <laughs> Days of silence and nights that were empty, and the city swung and swayed like an empty dream in the mind of a madman. 
away. Hey, you, move on. And in the warm nights... Oh, don't talk, Evelyn. Don't talk. Just be still and be happy. I do make you happy, don't I, darling? And you love me. And have. Quiet, Evelyn. Just be still and don't say anything. Don't ever try to talk. Just be quiet. <laughs> and in my heart, the words pounding, the meaning of life and death in words, words. Love is just the terror of a heart alone. I'm alone, oh my love. Lonely as the sun, the sea dashing out its heart upon the sunken rocks and sheltering at night within its breast poor <laughs> drifting birds that know no rest. Oh, don't try to say anything, Isles. I love you, that's all you need to know. And you can't love me anymore by talking about it. Anne, 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 listen to me. You can't believe me unless I find words to tell you, unless I find words. I looked the city over and over and through for words, for people. In every place I went, the people wanted to live in silence. To live in a city of silence is to live in dream death. Silence, silence, they want silence. They want to be apart, to be alone, to die. Uh, Mr. Islin, I'll have to ask you not to bother the other boarders here. If you can't keep from trying to intrude on their privacy, I'll have to ask you to leave, Mr. Islin. Stop trying to talk. Stop trying to live. Mother, mother, we can be friends. We can talk to each other. The days are not hungry when men can talk, and the nights are not empty when we can hide our fears in words. Words are thoughts and thoughts are life. No. No. I can't talk with you tonight, Mr. Ethan. I... I'm dizzy tonight. I... I need other plans. Good night, Mr. Ethan. Fear. Terror. Fear of being alone and fear of breaking down the walls they've built around them. Walls to keep men from men and women from women because the truth about life would kill them. If they knew the truth, they would know life and death. They would know, they would know, and they fear the knowledge. Men fear men because in men's hearts are words, and the words are truth, and men fear the knowledge of themselves. Words. Words are weak and empty, but there's a greater thing man has. Poetry and music. I can get through. I can break down the walls, the walls of fear. Darling, I haven't seen you in a whole week. I have something for you, Anne. Something I've been working on. Oh, Islan, you darling, why... Why, it's a song and some music. You wrote it? I wrote it, Anne, because... Well, I've been trying so hard to say something to you, and I haven't been able to. Words don't mean anything. Everything I've tried to say has sounded weak and empty. But here, listen. Listen to this. Now you'll know. You hear it? You hear what I'm trying to say? The need I had for you, the hunger I had in my heart, the angry yearning, the dreams of life, of life without fear, life and you and life without loneliness. What does it mean, Evelyn? What are you trying to say with it? I'm... I try to put down... And you know, my need for you, life without fear, without loneliness. Life with you, Anne. <laughs> oh, you darling. Why do you try to tell me? 
I know what you want to say. But you don't, Anne. You, you don't know. You, you know I love you, but you don't know why I love you. I'm trying to tell you why. I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> you poor dear boy. You're always trying to say something to me. Why don't you stop trying to break your head against something you don't understand? Don't try to talk, darling. Don't try to talk. Anne, Anne, here's something for you. Something I wrote. Evelyn, what is it? A poem? Yes, a poem. I've tried to put down all I've been thinking, all I wanted to say to you. Oh, you darling. Read it to me, Evelyn. A poem to me, how wonderful. Here is dull evening. I, I can see, see the, the whirling dust of you and me rise in the empty street below. This in the wind I see, and this, this I know. We are no more living than the, the dust, dust that blows over the crumbling gutters. Dust that, that goes on forever. Dust that has no heart, no dreams, no, no hopes, bitter and apart. We are no more than this, and never will be elfin dust upon a windowsill. Why, Islan, what does it mean? Mean? Don't you like it? Well, it's, it's not very good, Islan. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say, dust, we are no more than this. Never will. <laughs> oh, poor darling. Islan, don't try to say anything. You don't need to try, Islan. But, Anne, I must tell you. I must tell you. I must. I must. I'm dying. The silence. The walls between people is on my heart like a steel band. Life without words is death. I've tried. My words are empty. I can't break through. We're living in a world of silence, a world of death. I have no life. I have no life for the world is silent. And and I must get through to you. I'm dying, Anne. I'm dying. Dying for I'm starved with fear and loneliness. I'm afraid, Anne. We can't speak. We can't speak. I'm dying, Anne. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, The City of Silence was written by Albert N. Williams for the Listener's Playhouse. Special music was by Tom Bennett, conducted by Joseph Stopak. The parts of Islin and Anne were played by Louis Van Ruten and Joan Banks. Next week at this same time, by Ranald MacDougall, I'm a Liar. for the Relic Radio Show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find more from Adventure Incorporated, the Listener's Playhouse, the Relic Radio Show, and everything else Relic Radio at the website, relicradio.com. You'll also find our shoutcast stream there and our donate button. If you'd like to help support this and all of the shows, it's how all of this is made possible and has been for the past 15 years. 
visit donate.relicradio.com and donate today if you're able to help out. Thanks to those who have. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Tuesday with another hour of the Relic Radio Show. Thank you.